are listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering times, please visit GoCentralChurch.org. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ethan Crowder. If you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in Isaiah 53, uh, is where we're going to be this evening, Isaiah 53. Uh, And we're going to look at verses 4, 5, and 6, but we're going to read... Um, the first, uh, the first two verses uh, as well in Isaiah fifty-three. Um, you know, we call today Good Friday, right? But w- I think we've got to ask ourselves, well, what is good about Good Friday? It's it's ironic that we call today Good Friday, but we call the day after Thanksgiving Black Friday, right? Uh, that uh, that today we call good uh, when really today represents the forces of evil coming against the plan of God. Right well, Today, we're celebrating the fact that Jesus died on a cross. And he didn't just die on a cross, but he was murdered. He, he was tortured. He was executed on a cross for us. And yet, we can call today good because we know that it's Friday, but that Sunday is coming. But this evening... I don't want us to run to the tomb. I think we need to to sit at the cross for a little while and to just think about and to consider what it is that Jesus did, what it is that Jesus accomplished on the cross. And so we're going to look here at Isaiah 53, this uh, famous chapter, this famous passage we know as the suffering servant. And as we look at this passage, we're going to see this truth. That on the cross, Jesus took our place and did what we could not do so that we could have what we could not earn. That on the cross, Jesus took our place and he accomplished what we could not so that we could gain what we could not earn. And so look with me here at Isaiah 53. We're going to zero in on verses 4, 5, and 6, but I want to start in verse 1 because I think it, it helps us understand what the prophet is doing here. So stand with me as we honor the reading of God's perfect and precious word here in Isaiah 53. Verse 1, the Spirit says to us this, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me? 
Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross that we get to come and we get to celebrate this evening. Thank you that Jesus died so that we wouldn't have to. That, that he took our place, he took our punishment. And that because of that, we can have life. And so Lord, we pray that you would bless the, the reading of your word this evening. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we look at Isaiah 53, we're just going to work uh, verse by verse through verses 4, 5, and 6. And we're going to see what the prophet uh, is saying to us on behalf of the Lord. And so in verse 4, we see this, that Jesus carried our sin. Jesus carried our sin. You know, sin is heavy. That's why we need Jesus. We can't deal with our sin on our own. We, we don't have the answer for our sin. We think that we can carry it, but what we, we soon find out is that the longer that we try to carry our sin on our own, the heavier it gets and the more crushing it feels and really the more brokenness that it leads to. As we look here at Isaiah 53, Isaiah has introduced this suffering servant. He's actually introduced the servant a couple of chapters earlier. Many scholars, they refer to Isaiah as the fifth gospel. Because in the book of Isaiah, we get a picture of who Jesus is and what he has done more clearly than we get anywhere else in the Old Testament. And as we look at Isaiah 53, maybe when I said turn to Isaiah 53, maybe you thought, wait, we're supposed to be thinking about the cross. We're supposed to be looking at the cross. Well, that's exactly what Isaiah is doing. That's exactly what he's doing. He's showing us what would Jesus endure? What would the Messiah walk through as he brought salvation to his people? And so here in verse 4, Isaiah says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now that word surely, that in Hebrew, that is a word that, that carries with it the strongest affirmation of what is about to be said. It's almost as if the, the prophet is putting an exclamation point, not just at the end of the sentence, but at the beginning of the sentence. It's as if the prophet is saying, listen to what I'm about to say because this is important. This is big. You need to hear this. You need to know this. He says, surely he has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows. Now, when he talks about grief and sorrow here, he's, he's not talking about our emotional hurt and our emotional pain only. And now, Jesus came to heal our hurts, right? He came to heal our hearts. But what Isaiah is talking about here, he's not saying that, that the Messiah is going to come. And when the Messiah comes, that he is going to come to just carry the things that make you sad or to carry the things that, that, that maybe make you hurt. No, what he's saying is that he has borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows. That's not just emotional hurt and pain, that's the consequences of our sin. That, that when the Messiah comes, that when Jesus comes, what Jesus was going to do is Jesus was going to carry the consequences. He was going to carry the burden of our sin. See, since consequences are brokenness now, for sure, right? We experience physical brokenness. We experience death and disease and decay. We experience emotional brokenness where, where we are hurt deeply in ways that people don't always see. 
We experience spiritual brokenness where we give our hearts to sin rather than our hearts to Jesus. But the greatest brokenness that sin brings it isn't an emotional hurt. It's not a physical pain. The greatest brokenness that sin brings is brokenness between us and a holy and a righteous God who cannot dwell with sinners. The greatest brokenness that sin brings is that even the tiniest of sins is enough to condemn us to hell for all of eternity because our God is not a small God. Our God is a big God. Our God is not a small God. Our God is an infinitely holy God. And so one sin, one small sin against our God is enough to bring condemnation for all of eternity. That's the great brokenness. That's the great consequence that our sin brings. But look at the end of verse 4. Look at the way the people respond to this servant. Isaiah writes, Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. There's confusion of the people in response to the servant's suffering. Now before we look at their response, notice that this is not their response. This is our response. Look there in that second phrase. He says, yet we esteemed him stricken. He uses the first person plural pronoun. He doesn't say that they esteemed him. He says that we esteemed him. What he's doing is he's calling our attention so that we recognize, that we see, that we understand that this story of the suffering servant, that this is not a story that we are mere spectators in. This is a story that we play a part in. This is a story that we can identify ourselves in. He says, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. See, what he's saying is that the people, they looked and they saw this, this Messiah, or they would see this Messiah, they would see this Jesus, and they would see what he would endure, they would see what he would do, and they would look at him and they would say, well, that's what he deserves, right? He has earned that. That's, he's getting what, what he deserves. And if we fast forward to the New Testament, then we know that that's exactly what the Pharisees said, right? That this Jesus, he's getting what he deserves, right? That he is a blasphemer. He's, he's saying that he is equal with God. But what the Pharisees miss is that in their accusation, in their pleasure that Jesus would be crucified, that they're the blasphemers. And what that means is that we're the blasphemers, Right, that, that we have not seen Jesus rightly. We have not seen Jesus correctly. We need a change. See, Jesus, he didn't come to bear his griefs and his sorrows. He didn't come to bear the consequences for our, for his sins. He came to bear the consequences for our sins. Right? Jesus had no sins to bear the consequences of. Jesus lived a perfect and a holy and a righteous life. And that's what qualified him to go to the cross. Because if we went to the cross on our own, if we went to the cross on our behalf, then our sacrifice would be no good, right? Because we're not qualified. We're not sinless or spotless. We're sinful and tainted. See, on the cross, Jesus carried our sins in himself. In fact, if we want to be a little more theologically precise, Jesus did not carry our sin. 
Jesus became our sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So for our sake, for, for my sake, for your sake, for, for Ethan's sake, for, for your sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin. Not to be like sin, but to be sin. That on the cross, Jesus didn't put on a backpack and carry our sin there. On the cross, Jesus became our sin. On the cross... Jesus became everything that separates us from the Father. He didn't just represent it, he became it. Let that sink in for a minute. That on the cross, Jesus became the worst about us so that he could deliver the best for us. That on the cross, Jesus didn't go, Jesus didn't die for the things that are just a little wrong. Jesus died for the things that separate us. And if we're honest, on the cross, Jesus died for the things that we still enjoy. That when we sin... Right? We don't sin because we don't like it, right? No one, no, no one says, hey, I really need you to sin today. I know you don't want to do it, but I really think you need to do it, right? No, no, one, no one says, hey, you, you should probably think about this today. Or, or you should probably say that to your wife. Or, or you should probably do this or, or act this way. No one says that. No, we do those things because we enjoy them. And those things that we enjoy are the things that held Jesus to the cross. See, on the cross, Jesus became that. Jesus died to take our place. He, he died as that sin. It is that thing that we enjoy, but that thing that we enjoy is ultimately the thing that will kill us. It's ultimately the thing that will destroy us. It's ultimately the thing that sends us to hell. See, on the cross, Jesus took our place and he did what we could not do so that we could have what we could not earn. See, on the cross, Jesus carried our sin. Next, we see this in verse five, that on the cross, Jesus took our punishment. Christianity is a bloody religion. Think about the songs that we sing. There is a fountain filled with blood. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood. See, Christianity is a bloody religion, and if we lose the blood, then we lose the gospel. We can't lose the cross. We can't lose the gospel. See, the good news of the gospel is summed up here in verse 5 that Christ was punished and we are not. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. So, so what brings us peace 
It isn't what we do. What, what brings us peace isn't because we haven't really been that bad. No, what brings us peace is that the second person of the Trinity, the Holy Son of God that has never sinned, that's never tasted sin, that he was crushed. He, he was murdered for us. Now, when we think about crucifixion, crucifixion was not like the executions that we think about today. See, crucifixion was far more than just paying a penalty. Crucifixion served a point. Crucifixion served to prove a point. It was to humiliate and then to execute. It, it was to torture and then to kill. Mark Strauss, he's a, a New Testament scholar, he says this. He says, crucifixion was used both as a means of execution and for exposing an executed body to shame and humiliation. So if you, you go back and you read different accounts of crucifixions, you, you read about these, these men and these women, these criminals who were crucified. And, and once they died, their bodies weren't removed. See, to remove a body from the cross, you, you had to have permission from a judge. And the judge didn't always grant the permission, and so a lot of times these, these criminals, they were crucified, and now crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst. They would be crucified on a hill, and their bodies would be left for the birds to eat and for the bugs to infest because the Romans wanted everyone to know what happens to those who get crucified. They wanted everyone to know what happens to those who break the law. This is why it's puzzling for me when I see unbelievers wearing crosses around their neck or, or with cross tattoos that, that that's outside of Christ. That is not a symbol of hope. That's a symbol of torture. It, it's not even like wearing an electric chair or a, a lethal injection needle around your neck. It, it's far, far worse. See, crucifixion, it, it didn't begin on the cross. See, crucifixion was a process. Oftentimes, it began with lashings. Now, you could get out of the lashings if you were a, a politician or if you were a female, but from what we know from history, that oftentimes those were not the ones who were crucified. See, it would begin with this flogging, and this flogging would, uh, would be used. We know from history that most likely when Jesus was flogged, he was flogged with something called a cat of nine tails. And this cat of nine tails was a small whip, and, and in the whip it was uh, strings made of leather, nine tails, and, and in these tails would be braided pieces of stone and of glass and of metal and of bone and really anything that was sharp. And then what they would do is they would take and they would, they would tie the, the criminal, they would tie the victim to a post, probably something similar in height to this light right here. They would tie his hands to the post. And they would beat him supposedly 39 times because it was known that 40 would kill you. But what we also know from history is that oftentimes it went much, much further than that. 
And so what they would do is they would take this cat of nine tails and they would hit you from the back all the way down to the bottom of the legs. And as that whip hit your back, what would happen is those, those stones and those, uh, that metal and that glass and those shards and that bone, it, it would sink into your body. And, and a, very talented, a very talented centurion, what, what he could do is he knew how to hit the back and then set it and pull. So that as those, those straps landed in your back, the, those shards would sink down deep into the back. And as they came out, they would bring skin and flesh and muscle. Uh, oftentimes, these beatings would be so deep that, that the bones would be revealed. In fact, we've got records of oftentimes, more, uh, more than you w- would think, that oftentimes that death would happen there rather than on the cross, but they would still crucify the person because the, the pain was so excruciating. Their body would go into shock and they couldn't handle it, or uh, oftentimes they would just pass out right then. And so they would take that, that whip and they would beat over and over and over again until oftentimes the person was no longer recognizable. And then from there, they would bring the, the cross beam. And oftentimes at that post, they would just go ahead and nail the hands of the criminal to the cross beam. Sometimes they would just tie it. Sometimes they would just wait. We know from the gospels that with Jesus, they obviously were going to tie him because Simon carried that cross beam up to uh, up to the hill. And so they would carry that cross beam, and as they would carry that cross beam down that road, they would be insulted. They would be spit on. They would be kicked. This, this wasn't a quick trip up the hill. This was a slow process, because remember, this, this victim, this criminal, had just been beat 39 times with a whip made of bone. And then they would, they would get the, the person to the top of the hill and they would lay them down on the cross beam and they would stretch out their hands. And, and what we know is that the, the Romans had perfected this. They had perfected crucifixion, not to make it as quick, but to make it as painful as possible. And so what they would do is they would, they would pull the arms out and they would extend them typically another six inches. And then they would nail the hands, they, which was typically the wrist. They would nail the wrist to the beam. And then they would take and they would attach that cross beam to, to the next piece of the cross. And then they would set that cross up. And then they would nail the feet to the cross. And as they were nailing the, the hands and the feet to the cross, we, we know that no bones were broken in, in Christ's body, but what we also know is that nerves were crushed. Muscle and flesh was destroyed. And you, you would think that after going through all of that, that death would, be, death would be quick, but what we actually know is that death typically went from three hours to four days. And so as, as those criminals are on the cross, as Jesus is on the cross, death didn't, it didn't come from ways that we might expect. Sometimes it would come from loss of blood. Sometimes it would come from exposure. Sometimes they would just go ahead and kill the man on the cross. But, but more often than not, it came from suffocation. 
That, that as those criminals were, were stretched out on the cross, that their bodies would slump down and they weren't strong enough to, to breathe. And so the only way they could breathe is to take and to pull themselves up on the nails that had been driven through their hands. And that was the only way that they could get breath. And they could only do that for as long as they had energy. And then once the energy went away, they would, they would suffocate and they would die. Crucifixion was bloody and was gory. See, because of that, the, our faith is a bloody faith. But what Hebrews 9 tells us is that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. See, crucifixion was terrible, and yet as Christians, we can say that the cross is beautiful. See, Christ's death on the cross brought us peace. So with every insult, and with every whip, and with every drive of the hammer, Jesus Christ was securing our salvation. We see that that on the cross, Jesus carried our sin, and he took our punishment, and finally, we see this, that on the cross, Jesus suffered God's wrath. Look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The cross was a terrible, terrible way to die. But Christ's greatest agony was not the cross. See, on the cross for the first time, Jesus was separated from the Father. This is why on the cross, Jesus cries out that Psalm 22 cry. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In verse 6, we see why the cross matters. It says that all we, that first person pronoun again, all we, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Now, sheep are foolish and helpless. One commentator, he said, sheep are stupid. See, we all are like sheep. We are all foolish and we're all helpless and we've all lost our way. We might expect to find in this passage the the promise of punishment, right? We, We might expect to read that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And so the Lord has chastised us. The Lord has punished us. The, The Lord is against us, but that's not what we find. No, what we find is that we all like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned everyone to his own way. Every one of us, we have decided in our hearts from birth or from conception, David says, that in sin did my mother conceive me. That that from the very beginning, we have decided that we would go our own way because our sin has corrupted us to the core. See, it's not that that we were kind of good and then one day we tasted sin and liked it. No, it's that we are sinners. See, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because that's who we are. We are sinners. And yet we don't find a promise of punishment for us here. Instead, we find that the servant, we find that Jesus, he takes our iniquity. He alone was qualified. Now, the end of verse 6, the prophet says this, And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, the original, the original audience would have immediately recognized 
what was happening here. They, they would have immediately recognized what was being said. See, this was scapegoat language. But this scapegoat language, this isn't figurative scapegoat language. And for Israel, this was literal scapegoat language. This is where the, the phrase scapegoat comes from. Listen to Leviticus 16, verses 21 and 22. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So you get this picture of, of the priest on that, that day of atonement, the, the, the priest taking the goat and he, he lays his hands on the goat and he confesses the sins of the people that we are sinners and then he lets the goat go free out into the wilderness. Now it's not that he's letting the goat go free. In fact, what he's doing is he's condemning the goat to death. And the goat can't stay in it can't stay in the camp because now the goat represents sin, right? The, the goat represents what sin has become. And so here in Isaiah 53, what we have is that the Lord laying the iniquity on the servant. What he's doing is he's, he's laying the sins of the people on Jesus. He's laying our sins on him. And so in a way that only God can do because he's infinitely wise and infinitely holy, in Jesus Christ, on the cross, he essentially confesses our sins. He, he, he calls our sins over Jesus. And Jesus becomes that goat. Jesus becomes that sin. See, for Israel, the scapegoat became the sin. We already said that that's what Jesus did, right? Jesus became the sin. And so, so he would call out the sins of the people on the goat, and then he would send the goat out into the wilderness, not to live a happy life, but he would send the goat out into the wilderness to become prey for a lion. Right? He, he, he would send the goat out into the wilderness to experience death. Now, what we have here happening in this passage is that all of the penalties for breaking the covenant come to a head. See, we know that the way God speaks to his people, the way God relates to his people is through covenants. He makes covenants with his people, right? We, we see a covenant with, with Noah and a, a covenant with Abraham and a, a covenant with David. Now, these covenants, they're not really different covenants. Instead, what's happening is we read through the Old Testament is that these covenants are, are really building on one another. And so that with every covenant, it's as if God is making a little clearer and a little clearer what he's going to do. And he essentially gets to the new covenant, right? But there's always penalties for breaking the covenant. But the amazing thing about the penalties for breaking the covenant is that God doesn't promise them to us. He promises them to him, right? Remember God making the covenant with Abram? Remember what he does? He, he takes and he, he has Abram cut a bull in two and lay it on either side. And then, this was common in the day, what would happen is, is, is people would make covenants together and, and they would sacrifice, they would slaughter a, a cow or a goat. And that would be the sign of the covenant, that would be the seal of the covenant because what they were saying is that if I break this covenant, 
Let what happened to this bull happen to me. And so God makes this covenant with Abram. And typically, the the two parties of the covenant, they would walk through the two halves together. Because they were saying, "If, if we break this covenant, let this happen to us. But if you remember what happens in God's covenant with Abram, is that he tells Abram to stand over there, and the smoking pot goes through the two halves by himself. Because what God is saying is that all of the responsibilities for the keeping of this covenant fall on me. All of the responsibilities for keeping this covenant are on God, not on us, because he knows what we know, right? That we're not faithful. And so here in Isaiah 53, what we have happening is we have all of the covenant penalties coming to a head, but they're not coming ahead to us, they're coming to a head on God. Right? They're coming to a head in Jesus Christ. See, the suffering servant, and we've got to get this right, the suffering servant is the substitute for God's people. He takes our place and our penalty. So Christ's death on the cross is a substitutionary atonement. That he stands in our place and takes what we deserve, but then he gives us what he has earned. That that's what's happening on the cross. That's why the cross is so important. And this was God's plan all along. Look at verse 10 of Isaiah 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Whose will was it to crush the servant? God's will. If you're reading from the King James or the New King James, it says that it pleased the Lord to crush him. So if you remember back to Genesis chapter 3, we've got the fall, right? We've got sin entering the world, but that's not what we should take away from Genesis 3. That's important. We should take it away, but that's not the most important thing. The most important thing in Genesis chapter 3 is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is what theologians call the first gospel. See, in Genesis 3, 15, God makes a promise to Adam and Eve. He says that one day, the seed of the woman is going to come, and that the serpent is going to bruise his heel, but that ultimately that seed is going to crush the serpent's head. And then in Isaiah 53, we've got this servant who is crushed, but then if we keep reading, we read that out of the anguish of his soul, in verse 11, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous? And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. In other words, that on this servant, that his heel would be bruised, but ultimately he crushes the head of the serpent. And then on the cross, Jesus is being crucified, his heel is being bruised, and you have, just imagine the picture in hell, right? In hell, the demons are cheering because Satan has won. Right In hell, they are excited because that Jesus, right, we outsmarted God. He is dead. But what they fail to realize is all that they've done is bruise his heel. Because three days later, Christ rises again. 
And three days later, he begins the crushing of the serpent's head. And so every drive of that hammer, every beat of that nail, that was not the sound of Jesus' heel being bruised. That is the sound of the serpent's head being crushed. Right? And that's good news for us today. See, Jesus is alive. We're going to celebrate that on Sunday, that Jesus is alive. But before we run to the tomb, let's sit at the cross. If you were to flip over to Hebrews chapter 12, we, we read this. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And and listen to verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Notice that here, that, that the writer of Hebrews, where does he drive us to for endurance in the Christian life? He doesn't say go to the tomb, he says go to the cross, right? Look to Jesus, this one who endured from sinners hostility against himself. Remember what Jesus did so that you don't grow weary in doing well. Right, so that you don't grow weary in doing good. That, that Jesus endured the cross so that you can keep running the race. And then what we know, because the gospel is true and the, the gospel is good, is that if the story doesn't stop at the cross. Right, no, we keep going and that's when we get to the tomb. That we can keep running the race because the Holy Spirit of God that rose Jesus from the grave, that if you've trusted him, that same Holy Spirit is alive and at work in you, leading you, guiding you, driving you, carrying you to run the race of the Christian faith. Right, that, that same Holy Spirit is the one who has made you alive and who is leading you, who is carrying you. And so that one day we are going to be around the throne singing the praises of the lamb who was slain, the lamb who was overcome, and we can know that Jesus died in our place to punch our ticket so that we can be there, right? So that we can be there on that day. And so I hope that you'll be there. Right, if you've, if you've never trusted Jesus to save you, if, if you've never tasted the reality that, that Jesus was crucified, Jesus was murdered, Jesus was executed, Jesus took God's wrath for your sin, if you've never put your hope in that, then today is the day for you to do that. Right, today is the day for you to trust Jesus so that in just a few days you can celebrate with him. Right, you can celebrate with him the resurrection. But if, you, if you're like me and you, you've trusted Jesus to save you, then, then let's just take some time tonight. As we sing, as we pray here in just a few minutes, we're going we're gonna to observe the Lord's Supper. Let's just take some time tonight to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame so that we could be made right with God. That before we run to the tomb, let's sit at the cross. And let's consider that on the cross, Jesus did what we could not do so that we could gain what we could not earn. See, without the cross, there is no gospel. 
Without the cross, there is no forgiveness. But the good news is, is that we have the cross, right? Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, but blood has been shed, and praise God, it wasn't yours or mine, right? It was Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus who, who died, who suffered, who, who was crucified, and who was buried in my place. Thank you for how wonderful and how holy and how mighty you are and that your holiness is ultimately what, what drove Jesus to the cross, that, that you're a just God and as a just God, you needed payment for sin, but you didn't exact that payment from us. You took that payment from the life of Jesus. And so God, I pray that we would spend some time tonight just lingering along at the foot of the cross. That we would consider Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured what we deserved. And so God, make the cross clear and make it sweet. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Thank you again for listening to the Central Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at gocentralchurch.org.